0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The problem with feeling good, sometimes you want to feel better. And that's what I realized. I felt good. I wanted to feel better. What was that better going to look like? What drug take me to that better? so beside our lsd parties and all this and things like that and i still would take a little bit of that and i the old days was called quaaludes but all the along remember i am the director of high school guidance and the soccer coach i sat in a tent in a tent with the indians smoking peyote and drinking this tea doing a sweat lodge you think you see god You know, you know you do you know but see now the greatness is i see god without anything And that's the greatness of life.
1: Hey, Sebastian Alvarado with the Coffee and Football Podcast, a long-form interview where I sit with some of the most influential profiles in the game to learn about their lives and career journeys. This week's guest is Martin Jacobson, known to many as Coach Jake a legendary New York City profile and the coach of one of the most successful high school teams in the country, the Martin Luther King Jr. High School, a team consisting of incredibly talented kids from underprivileged inner city areas and immigrants from all over the world. This is as much a story about someone who's gone through the lowest points recovering from drug addiction and personal tragedies as it is about a man who has devoted his life to help coach and guide disadvantaged kids to a better future. It's a remarkable story you really need to hear to believe. We ended up chatting for over two hours, so I decided to divide this one into two parts. So without further ado, here is part one of my interview with Coach Jake. Coach, it's a, a great honor to have you here. I've heard about you throughout the years from many people. So I'm very happy that we finally made it happen. So let me formally welcome you to uh, Coffee and Football.
0: Oh, thank you, Sebastian. It's an honor to be here. Lovely place uh, and uh, great day. Great day for me to be here.
1: Um, h- how are you doing today?
0: You know, uh, I wake up at this ripe age uh, and uh, just glad I'm alive and uh, feel good. Uh, no ailments. And uh, Chuck full of energy
1: Is that what most days uh, look like for you? Because you seem to be a pretty positive character
0: I wake up happy every day You know, unless there's an unfortunate loss of a championship or something Then I'm miserable Uh, I don't wake up miserable even if we lose a game Or uh, as a coach But I do wake up uh, ecstatically uh, glad to be alive My life is good right now
1: What are the keys to, to that positive attitude?
0: Well... You know, you got to look at your background. You know, no one's background's been easy. No one said it'd be easy. You mm-hmm. know, um, I always remember this quote. am um, doing uh, in my uh, 30s and early 30s. Uh, I lived in New Mexico. I was running uh, long distances, still playing a lot of soccer. And uh, I ran up to a mountain. And out of nowhere, I looked down. There's a brass plaque. And it says, nobody said it'd be easy. And, and I couldn't believe it. I don't think I ever forgot that. Every day you just wake up uh, feeling good. Listen, everyone has soap operas. Everyone has ups and downs. I have uh, dysfunction in family. Uh, I've got uh, a lot, to, uh, if I dwell on the negative, to think about and be miserable and take, you know, all kind of antidepressants. That's just not in my DNA, let's just say. And I'm I'm very happy to be alive. And, uh, and what I'm doing, I love. I uh, spent a lot of years as a... 43 years as a professional educator uh some i'm not sure everyone calls me professional but i was an educator (laughs) and uh it's been uh it's been a good ride it's been a good ride it's especially good when you're uh 70 and uh you're feeling the way you do and, uh, you know, able to still work out and feel good and have positive energy and and love being around kids. And uh, things are positive right now in my life.
1: Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's uh, very contagious. So you, you you get people around you going as well. So um, how would you describe the workplace where you're at today?
0: Well, this is the way it is. Uh, I spent all these years at a high school, inner city high school, the last 30 plus It's had its problems, its ups and downs, but the one thing uh, I've developed is a uh, fantastic program. It's not just a team. And for years, I worked as a guidance counselor, a dean, administrator in athletics, and what I did six years ago is took that wonderful pension of mine and said, that's it, no more dean work, because if anybody knows what a high school dean does, it's, uh, I was working with two types of kids, my wonderful soccer kids that had their own problems and we dealt with and the kids that um, basically are not functioning well in school so if they're well functioning and are not functioning so all day I deal with the the kids that would have to go on suspension or you know who knows could be a weapons violation it's new york city and so it was a it was interesting and and 6 years ago to this date I do not have to go back and be a dean now I was a guidance counselor included in that an administrator but that in athletics but overall Uh, Right now, I go into work and I have an office and I deal with athletics. I see the kids every day, but I don't have to go into 1201. And guess what? I can come here and talk if I don't want to go into work. And that is why it makes things better in my life.
1: And today is kind of a a bit of an odd day for you because you don't have uh, any practice really. Because other than that, it seems like you have a very, very busy schedule. You know, what's a typical day for you? So, Take me through kind of from the moment you get up. What time do you get up? What types of routines do you have? And, and then from there on?
0: Well, you know, it depends on what's scheduled on there. You know, uh, the occasional doctor appointment, occasional situation with one of my children. Basically, it's 5 to 5.30, rise. It's uh, look at yourself in the mirror and say, thank you, God, for another day. Uh, my partner, she sleeps, you know, but she's very good. She doesn't listen to me. I have a computer and we have a small typical New York City two-room apartment. And uh, I have a a computer that just has headphones, so we don't have to worry about noise. And I get right on my computer. And then the New York Times gets delivered, and that's a must. The liberal that I am. Um, You know, eventually get to read a little bit of that. And and I drink a little coffee, drink three glasses of water and about 40 vitamins when I get up. I'm on a vitamin regimen because of uh, some of my past ailments. And uh I start immediately with emails and uh, correspondence because I'm going through so much. I also have a uh, a team app uh, that gets notices to all the team in case I want to give them a little extra nudge like, good luck today in the beginning of school. But uh, everything's automatically listed in games and practices. Uh, mostly that. Then, got to work out a little bit. And uh, since I tore the left shoulder out with the rotator, you know, I do bands. I do sit-ups bands. I have a stationary bicycle in my house. I do that. Sometimes I will do uh go stop everything, go take a nice hour walk. It just depends because the thing is, but eventually I'll end up back at school so the good thing about my schedule and retirement is I'm able to end back at school, of which is a soccer office, and you must see it it's beautiful, it's great, and it's small, but it's uh they kids every day whenever I'm there, if I'm not out of town or something, from the six floors in the building and it's a big building. Come and see me after school every single day, season or no season. And that's about 30 to 40 kids. In getting in
1: on that, on on MLK, tell me a little bit, like, w- what kinds of kids do you get into the program? And, and maybe even backing up a little bit and get an understanding of how do they get there? And, and what does that selection process look like?
0: Okay, so, so what we have in the New York City public schools at this current time, what MLK high school was a large, large urban comprehensive high school now your listeners overseas might not understand the educational system but new york city came up with this plan that they're going to disband all large urban high schools and on each floor of the high school they're going to make a school so literally mlk became mlk educational campus so on each floor is a different theme let's just say so that's an understanding that people have to understand that so we have the hunter high school for science, right? Hunter Manhattan, Hunter Hunter Science High School. Number one rated high school in New York City. It's better than Stuyvesant and this and my arch rival Beacon doesn't even compare to what we have. Four hundred kids, hard admission, bright kids. And then we have a high school for law. We have a high school for art and tech. We have a high school for urban studies, urban media, uh a music school in the building. So each floor. So what I do is then I go around and I work with um, distinct clubs. Manhattan Soccer Club, one of the main clubs, one of the higher-level clubs in the city. And Asphalt Green now is coming by live. They're coming live uh, as a program, and I know the coaches there. One of them helps me with my program. We have uh, Central Brooklyn, one of my top kids from the islands there. He coaches a great program. Central Brooklyn soccer is really good. So uh, I'm able to go and say, okay, why don't you apply to these schools? And New York City has an open enrollment system. Any kid, first choice, any choice they make, they have to apply. They try to get in one of these schools, and I uh, talk to the counselor, I talk to things, and I say, just apply. We'll get you in, you know? And these are players that are targeted. Uh, and it's legal under the Department of Ed Policy to ask a kid to come to your school uh, from eighth to ninth grade. So I meet the kids in seventh or eighth grade. Then I get a huge amount or a fair amount i shouldn't say huge of family members of kids who played for me or or coaches i've got this one guy in the uh bronx runs a small league uh, donovan my coach donovan i jake uh, jamaican national just came over you know how can i get him into your school so i says well you know go to the enrollment office and request a school because kids are allowed choices now a lot of people say well they shouldn't be allowed for soccer well why not why not? Why shouldn't you be allowed for anything if you're part of a program that's going to get you an education? Look, I got a 96% plus graduation rate. I've got 20 professionals who played for me, and I got hundreds in every college you can imagine, from Yukon to St. John's to, to Bradley to Virginia to, uh, you know, North Carolina State to to Little Bethel in Indiana, which is an NAIA school, to Bethel in Tennessee, which is an NAIA school, where kids get free money, and they, their lives have changed. And uh, why shouldn't they come if they're that caliber of player? And not everyone is, but that's what we, we bring on. And, and the kids seem to be happy to be part of this process.
1: And you get kids from from quite a few different backgrounds. And can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, One.
0: yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's it's your uh, The dynamics of the team changes. Sometimes it's more Hispanic. Um, sometimes it's uh, uh, more Caribbean. Caribbean, I should say. Uh, sometimes it's uh, West African. I mean, I, I've got kids from Eastern Europe, too. I mean, I get them all, uh, which is nice. So my my boys uh, this year's, like, for instance, this year's team, quite a bit of West Africans this year. Uh, last year, more of the island boys. You know, the year before, more Central and South American boys. And then the smithering of the others. You see, our sport does not have barriers. Uh, our sport does not have color. Our sport is colorblind. It's ethnic blind. It's, it's, it's culturally blind. It's, uh, it's about talent. It's about love. It's about the passion that they all exist. It does not matter what they are. I don't know if I even think about it. You know, I just, just know that's the dynamics of the team. 20 years ago on the bus, you'd see the Hispanic boys hanging out by themselves and the island boys on the back making noise you now. And then the West African kids looking at books, you know, and just trying to learn the language, you know. And now we've got, we go on that same bus. They're all kind of mixed together. And isn't that what we're about? And, and it's nice to see the changes. And not to say culturally, they don't talk in French or Wolof or, or, uh, Mandingo or, or they do. They speak their language. Um, you know, one year I had, uh, five Ghanians and all of a sudden I have no Ghanians. You know, you just don't know the ethnic, the, the breakdown, you know, but I do know they get on the field and it does not matter to them who starts, what, what shade they are. We're just happy to see that.
1: How would you say that? Because these kids come from all kinds of backgrounds and different socioeconomic statuses. And I can imagine that you're dealing with many more challenges, even off the field types of challenges, versus an all-white school in a more privileged area, Sort to
0: speak. Well, one of the more privileged schools is one of our main competitors. For some reason, the Department of Ed has decided to you know give them a new school, give them... I don't know, you know, but it's typical of this country, uh, unfortunately, of, of the uh, educational system, how it's not, uh, let's so called say, so equal, just, and fair. But what we have, many of my kids have economic need. Um, that's why they get a lot of financial aid if they go to college. You know, I, I, at times I have to help out families. If you don't have some, uh, can't pay your rent or you have, have no food on the table, what are you going to do? So what, what do you do? How do you help them? Well, you know, probably... Uh, you know, it'll come under some NCAA misdemeanor, you know, to say that I help. So I don't, you know, I won't get specific. Just to say I find benefactors to look out for them, you know, so we can say it's me, you know. Um, Someone might help them out, uh, Wise. you know. I also you know, have and will assist and continue to assist, especially in today's climate, with uh, any legal needs that are needed for immigration status, especially with the current administration. And and I'll be an advocate for that on a, on a very big scale, um, but actually on a quiet scale, too, because then uh, I'm just going to take care of this, these kids that play for me the best I can, if I can. And, and nowadays, more of my kids are born here. Or uh, have full status here, so that's good. But there are half a dozen, at least, maybe more, that I have to assist in the immigration process. So I always, you know, worked, you know, no aware of it, and it's a slow process. But I have a lawyer uh, who is, uh, let's just say, on call.
1: This would be a long conversation in, in itself, but if we touch on it briefly, because it is a complex subject, but. What are your feelings in, in, in today's political landscape and reality that we're in in relation to, to what you're doing? Because to your point, you're dealing with and working with, with, with a lot of these kids and families and, and neighborhoods that are, you know, directly affected by some of these policies that are put in place.
0: Well, I like I said, I'm not going to hide my, um, my political beliefs. Um... Well, I think this goes beyond. I mean, yes, yes, yes. It goes beyond it. It, it deep, deeply is in rooted in me as as a, you know, first generation immigrant as or a second generation in my case. But it does not matter. It's civility, decent humanity, kindness. Uh, what happens? What happens here? Um, a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago, I had a boy from um, Ecuador. He was coming over here, and I met him. Great kid. He was my center forward. He was going to be a starting striker uh, last year, 2016. And he did the right thing. He had a visa, a visitor visa. And because you're not allowed an I-20, a student visa, because if you go to public school, I don't know why not. But, you know, this is similar to what's going on now with the DACA. This is similar to what's going on now with the people's giving. So if you go to a public school? Yeah. You can't get an I-20, man. They no, not allowed. You can have to be in a private private school, pay all this money to go to high school. This is high school. Not that college is the same thing, the I-20, which you're familiar with. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm,
1: I'm one of the lucky ones who, yeah. who got into a private school on a scholarship and, yes. and got a visa that way. So
0: Yeah, but you went to college for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this is high school, so high school doesn't permit that. So any kid it didn't have it, so so they come over and uh, they're here and they figure, well, you know what? I've got a visit visa. I'll go back because you're required to go back every uh, four months, I think. It's something like that on the visit of visa, and I'll go back visit the family and come back again. And this was he was doing great in school, learning English, everything was perfect, and uh, he gets to the, uh, Kennedy, and they pull him right out. And they look at him and say, "Oh!" A, a, and I uh, think at that point he's eighteen. And they say, "Let me have your phone." They take his phone. They call his aunt. And says, "What school does he go to?" Uh, this is the school. Uh, this the, the duplicity, uh, uh on their part. Uh, they they go to the school. Uh, they call their aunt. and say, "Oh, he goes to Martin Luther King." And they take him and they lock him up for like three days in Kennedy Airport, revoke his visa, and send him back to Ecuador. And that just happened a year ago. Okay. So you ask me if that didn't break my heart? I don't know what did. You know, that this is one of them. He's not the first kid I had that's been deported. That's the most recent. He wasn't deported, he was just allowed an entrance, and now we can never come back for 10 years minimum, you know? Um, see, their opportunity was that this kid would be here, we'll get him into an I 20, into college, and then we'll continue keeping them here and and then you know whatever reason get permanent residence with with the grace if he gets lucky permanent residence that's our goal so then i have kids who have been um homeless here you know you know over the years and and fortunately some foster agencies took them in and they were able to get it you know there are a lot of stories that i have and certain stories i don't share because i want everybody to know my little secrets you know but I'll go all the way out to do anything I can to save the play. I, look, I can't save the world. I cannot save every child. I can't save the 780,000 people that this darn uh, president has decided to revoke. And this this Jeff Sessions character is, is his henchman and this nonsense. And it's disgusting. It's disgraceful. It's inhumane. That's part of it. I have kids under that. OK, there are kids that played for me that I'm very aware of that have come under that, that presidential order that President Obama put forth. I am not uh, going to tell you uh, that uh, I'm anything but against this whole situation. Again, I can only save who I can save. And um, the old adage, you save one life, you save the world. It's, uh, from the days of the Holocaust, which is, makes me I'm very familiar with as a person of that uh, ethnic background myself.
1: Not only have you built a a great program and helping a lot of people, but you've turned it into perhaps the most successful high school team around. I'd like to understand how have you gone about building this?
0: You remember we touched back a little bit on the U.S. soccer, you know? Well, what you gotta do is you get into people's hearts, you know? You make them believe in themselves. So it's not just tactics. It's not just some goalie coach directing the united states national team that i don't think is uh the greatest you know it's uh, it, it's not like that you know uh, it's not the guy from germany who wins the world cup that thinks he's going to import players and do this and that don't get me wrong there's there's structural need there, there's importance to training and certain ways to coach you know and and do that but like i say our program is as good as anybody's you know um I've been fortunate enough to have, you can't win without talent. Let's just face it. So so why, why why are we winning? Well, like I say, I get good kids that come when we develop them. They come in ninth grade. They come to me at 13, 14. Hey, listen, stick around, buddy. You know, oh, always an example. I have a kid playing for the Cosmos named David Diosa, Just one of them. I had a kid who played at Hartwick and was an All-American, Stephen Amaya. Okay. They didn't see the field to their 11th grade year. You know, we build it. We build a character. We build a love. Uh, we always call it King Heart. I build a development and a thing called, you. you have to have heart for this school. You have to have heart for this program. You have to be extra special. No field, no funding, no bus, no locker room. We change our clothes on the field. We don't have a locker room at school to go in the back of the school and practice. We just don't have it. They change in my office. They change anywhere you can. Let's go over there. Just change in a corner. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes you have to urinate in a corner. You know, I mean, that's who we are. But the King Heart. Is what you do. So I developed what I say it starts with great talent. I recognize it. I can tell you talent in 10 minutes or less. What are some of the things you look at? Gait. How does that kid run? What kind of gait do you have? What kind of ability do you have? Athletic ability do you have at all? What do you look like? If I see it kid stiff and, land, and I can tell a kid's gait right away, you know, mm-hmm. then we go to touch. Let's see if it has a touch. Let's put him over here with this. Just yesterday I got a kid from Brazil. Brazil. Couldn't believe it. His dad is telling me, nice family. Dad's telling me how great he is. You know, he'll make my third tier, you know, but he should make the team because maybe next year he'll develop. Maybe that kid like Stephen Amaya or David Diosa, who didn't see the field and is now a Cosmo, who didn't see the field and went on to full four-year scholarship until the junior year, maybe he'll be a senior player. He's got enough to develop, you know. Um, You just don't know. But but you develop the heart. You see the gate. You ask me, what do I look at? Yeah, the gate. It's almost the first thing I look at is, how does that kid run? The next thing is, how does that kid touch the ball on a quick touch? Look at how he's turned. Look at how he turns his body. How does he touch the ball? I think the key is running and touching. Anybody can shoot a goal. Anybody can shoot on goal. Not everybody, but, you know. And then you look, if you say, left foot, right foot. What has he got? Dominant foot. I got a couple of players that are all dominant left. Doesn't make them bad players. So I look at those kind of things when we develop, you know. And then you ask back is what I do, is we take our talent, which God gives them not me uh, their own passion but it takes also uh, you know their mindset you know we have to create more of a mindset for them they have to believe uh, that they're 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 king soccer and that they're something special but you know you just look at it develop it you get the talent and then and then from there you you develop the heart the soul and the spirit that's necessary to win in soccer
1: I want to shift gears a little bit and rewind the tape and uh, learn a little bit about your background. Um, where did you grow up?
0: I was born in a hospital in Brooklyn, and my family when first uh, migrated to the Long Island and a little town called Long Beach on Long Island. Where did they come from? My family came from Eastern Europe, uh, uh, Prussia, Russia, Lithuania, that area, their parents fled the pogroms of the Russian pogroms. And uh, we arrived in New York City, like many immigrants uh, through Ellis Island. And uh, I believe my name was Yakubatsky, you know, Yakubat something like that. And then there was Jacob and his sons. That was my grandfather. had 10 10 brothers. And so it was Jacob and his sons. And I think that's how the name Jacobson came around. My mom was was also brought over here and met my dad. And uh, they were first generation. And they, again, chose to uh, move to Long Island. You're the first ones out there and a uh, lovely little beach town. I love it to this day.
1: How would you describe your upbringing?
0: Uh, economically in need. Uh, dad got very sick, so he lost his job. My mother had to work seven days a week uh, as a beautician. As a what, sir? Beautician, uh, hairdresser. hairdresser, okay. you know, um, which later in life affected her, all those dyes and all that stuff. And uh, she's uh, she she passed at 94. My dad passed at 53. What did your dad work dad worked with? worked in the garment district, and then he he lost the ability to work there. Then he drove a cab, and uh, uh, then he died. And and being brought up was uh, mostly a matriarchal family, and he uh, got very sick. And I passed away, and that's where I was, you know, on the streets, you know. And uh, So we economically, uh, no silver spoon in this mouth, you know, at all. Maybe that helps me recognize what these kids have gone through. Uh, we had food on our table. And not a lot of things, you know, but uh, we had a house, a little tiny house, was probably bought for $12,000 back then, and that was it, you know, uh, uh nice school system, great friends, great life, no complaints, uh, except one day I was uh, uh, getting in trouble throwing pebbles into cars and, uh, 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 you know, just just mischievous more than delinquent, but yet I did shoplift and do things that little kids do at, at 11 Twelve years old, eleven years old. So the police picked me up and took me to the recreation center on Long Island. And and this is one of my favorite stories. And uh, there was a man there named Herman Druckman. Can't ever forget him. You know, Holocaust survivor. But my emigrated from Brazil back to the States here, Germany, Brazil, here. And he ended up. I didn't know until a little later in life. He was an all American from Cortland State very very little german accent and you want to learn to play soccer and i said yes yeah, why not i was that's uh the police officer took me to him and back then it makes it ironic to me that we started learning to play soccer and i got pretty good at it and we we were using cones they had no goalposts and the and the soccer shoes were old football cleats and i mean the high rise high top football cleats with big giant studs in them and I got pretty good at it. And by the time I was in high school back then, they had a high school team. And, um, I got to start my freshman year. And, uh, then I went on to college to play. But Herman Druckmann, he may not know, but his just introduction to the sport of love, the beautiful game and all these wonderful uh, acronyms we use, it was it. Passion was born. So that was always an enlightening it's a little story uh, that the Holocaust survivor taught me the game.
1: What kinds of uh, dreams did you have?
0: You know, I'm not sure as a cognitive mind that kids have today. I, I just kind of was a dreamer rather than, you know, like like a daydreamer more than a dreamer. You know, I knew one thing. I always wanted to be a gym teacher. And that goal got fulfilled. You know, my bachelor's degrees in physical education. I always felt that the guy coaching me in high school, we had three different coaches, didn't know shit. And that I could become a better coach. That I knew. That I want to be a gym teacher and coach soccer. Yeah, I I, I always wanted to, and, and it's amazing that I back then I was uh, fifteen or so uh, when I said, yeah, I want to be a, I want to go to be a gym teacher. You know, I didn't have the grades for Cortland State. But, uh, you know, somehow I got out to Ball State University, Muncie, Indiana, and, uh, and there was a coach from New York City, uh, New York area, Long Island, I was coaching out there, and somehow I ended up there, and, uh, uh, back then, not scholarships, you know, I mean, I was able to get a graduate grant, and, uh, I was able to get a little cut off on my, uh, as tuition, like they gave me the last couple of years, in-state tuition versus out-of-state, uh, uh, so to, to make up a lie and say it was a full scholarship, there are no such things, you know,
1: uh, so you did your bachelor's in fifth ed, and you went on to do a master's yeah, as Yeah, well? I got
0: a master's in counseling. Uh, they gave me a grant uh, to go there. Uh, I went back a couple of years later after hippie days, traveling the country uh, after uh, not getting drafted. So I, I had a high lottery number back then. It was Vietnam War and all the time, and I was kind of a hipped out, you know. Hip- what, what was that? Like, what was the lottery? Well, What like- it is, is I started teaching in 1968. started coaching soccer and wrestling and everything in, in New York, and... Uh, by nineteen seventy they stopped deferments. Back then it's a little history in life and in the Vietnam War and most people were against it. Bottom line is uh I was uh gone to Brooklyn for the physical. I was in line to be drafted and then the next thing you know they said, You know what? We're gonna put a lottery out there and when your birthday gets picked, that's when you go, you know, and they picked hundred and ninety birthdays that were gonna go and uh, I was three hundred and ten. So I was teaching and I said, You know what? I'll go travel the country. And I was, uh, you know, it took some, you know, fun times. Let's just say the times of marijuana and drugs and all that was really increasing. And, and, uh, I, I just, uh, decided to travel. And then I was out of money and I went back to Indiana, to Ball State. And, uh, they had an opening, which is interesting. Now, I'll never forget it. They needed to hire a white person in a black program. Basically it was, it was what they called? called, the, you know, the uh, affirmative action, but it wasn't affirmative action, but. It was a tumultuous time in the 1970. It was tough in 1970. It was a time of uh, political turmoil and things like that. But I got selected, and it was great. I, I made $250 a month, and they gave me free tuition, and I got my master's degree with a 4.0, maybe 3.5, something. But there it goes from the 68 average. You go to that. It's pretty good. And now by 1971, I had my uh, degree. And back then, it's, uh, there were some things that went on at college, and you know, you know, you know, you dealt drugs to make money, and you, know, you protested the, the administration, you, you know, but, but I worked, uh, in a, in a program predominantly of kids who were taken out of the inner city of Gary, Indiana, and in Chicago, and given a chance to succeed in college, and they needed to hire for the federal program. Somehow it was me, you know? So, so it's interesting, you know? Again, I'm colorblind, so it didn't matter to me. It's just that they gave me the job.
1: Tell me about the Hippie Trip.
0: Hippie Trip was like the Volkswagen van jumping. Well, actually, that time was a Ford van. It was around the country, out to San Francisco to deal with my friend who was a major LSD dealer, you know, um, meeting up with him, doing all kinds of uh, dr- uh, drugs at that time, uh, recreational fun, I'd call it, partying, and then coming back to Indiana. It was just like I went to all the Idaho and this area and that area, and then I went back. And what happened, if we can follow the sequence of things, of going back to the Masters, like I talked about, then over to Detroit, and just saying, "You know what? I need to get out of here you know i, I just can't deal with it anymore. I can't be stuck in this job. Let me move across to another place and uh i didn't know where I was going to go. I took all my belongings and I was with somebody at the time, you know, the mother of a couple of my children, and then left it and just got in a car. So the story is this: so I'm in Detroit, and I'm still not coaching soccer, coaching wrestling. They didn't have any soccer back then. It's an area right outside Detroit, Trenton. And rented a house from a police officer. It was a funny story, you know. And I was in the park smoking marijuana. And I ran into this guy, Ted. Won't use his last name because, if, God, forbid, what if he's still 70 years old himself and alive? And he was, a, worked in the Ford Motor Company. And we started talking. And I, says, and I says, he said, says, do you know if I can get some LSD? And so my friend in California, we're talking a major LSD deal. And I said, Yeah, sure, man. And I'll get you some. And, and I need to supplement my income. And this is how I afforded to leave teaching and go forward. Anyway, I was able to start selling 10,000 hits of LSD about every two weeks. And it was a Mr. Natural LSD. And it was interesting how any car, I always laugh again, how did any car get manufactured? If the Ford Motor <laughs> Company is buying this stuff and all the guys on the assembly line are taking LSD, or they got manufactured beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> so, I took the proceeds of that money, and I just uh, said, "You know what? I'm putting everything on the porch." It was an old house. I'm um, lucky that the policeman, his name was Bob E. Well, he's got to be passed on by now. No, then in the basement of this house, this old old house, was like it was. a sh- It was like I would be shipping out thousands of dollars, and I'd be getting thousands of dollars and getting hits, and and I had all this money in cash. I feel like a major. You know, obviously not such a good drug dealer you know what is lsd and it was a day of lsd you know it was the days of uh, psychedelic drugs it was the days of partying. it was just the era in the 70s um and so i you know and i lived a double life i was also a very highly successful uh, wrestling coach i won all these matches and it was good but you know i had this dichotomy. i had this duality let's just say and so uh from there we went out and um that, that's when i discovered new mexico and uh you know worked out there
1: and then what happened out west?
0: Well, partied and all that. And I drove uh, down to lived in camped uh, camped out in Aspen for a good six weeks. Uh, and I started saying, you know, I better go back to teaching. And I uh, got some offers out west in Colorado. And I drove to Santa Fe. And this is 1974 um, by that time. And I just fell in love with it. I also was a believer in God. You know, and I went up and prayed on the top of a mountain every day. I was camping out in a Black Canyon campground on the outskirts of Santa Fe. And every day I go, but oh, God, I visualize because I believe in visualization. I believe in God. I went through all the, all the trainings of, of uh, mind control programs are called and, and things. I, I went through a spiritual path at that point. When I started doing those psychedelics, I also believed that there was a very great power beyond me. And that power sustained me to this day. And the belief of, you ask me why I'm positive, it always, Kept evolving my positive energy. Some of them artificially with uh, drugs, but most of them not. And I got a job out of 2,000 applicants. I got a job at Santa Fe High School as a guidance counselor. Living there was uh, it's heaven. It's a land of enchantment. It was beautiful. It's everything I wanted. That's where I, I, I lifted my soul, and that's where I bottomed out my soul in the same place. Got a job at Santa Fe High. And within two years, I started the first high school program in the state of New Mexico, a public school. And it was a battle. Again place to practice, fight the administration. They only want football. I got in a fist fight with the athletic director one day. However, I did start this program. I spent 10 and a half years in Santa Fe until I was run out of town.
1: You've mentioned it here a little bit, and you've been very open with it, going from kind of the recreational drugs to, to getting it, making it into an addiction. How did that happen?
0: You talk, We seem to be talking about evolving a lot here, you know? Things evolve. So here we go to the evolution of a drug addict. I was doing a lot of stuff, you know? Um I ended up being director of high school guidance in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Soccer coach in the front page of Santa Fe, New Mexican, all the time. Leading the team to many wins. Built the program. pioneered it and all that. Played it. For heaven's sake, we were in the Albuquerque Soccer League. I started the co-ed league in Santa Fe. I started to Santa Fe. I was very involved in this thing. And then I had bought um I lived on a place 7.2 acres outside of town. It was beautiful. Cañada de los Alamos was the name. I built a home. Remember I had all this drug money, so I was able to buy something. This is the ironic part is how you win and lose on that, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, I was able to move or leave because I made all that money LSD. So uh, it was a, it was a great time of my life, you know. Um, I ended up buying five homes. I ended up being well known in the community as a leader, and and all on those. But always looking for something. The problem with feeling good sometimes you want to feel better, and that's what I realized. I felt good. I wanted to feel better. What was that better gonna look like? What drug could take me to that better? So, beside our LSD parties and all this and things like that, and I still would take a little bit of that, and I, the old days was called Quaaludes, I'm I mean, probably, some of your listeners are going to remember this stuff, you know? They can remember the co- real, you know, the pure cocaine that you snort, and the, and the Valium to take you down, and the psilocybin mushrooms that I took on tops of mountains to hear God's music, you know, which I did. But all the long, remember, I am the director of high school guidance and the soccer coach, but... I sat in a tent, in a tent with the Indians smoking peyote and OSHA, because OSHA just stops you from getting sick, drinking this tea, doing a sweat lodge, you know. You think you see God? you You know, you do, you know. But see, now the greatness is I see God without anything. And that's the greatness of life, evolving. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry.
1: you talk about that drive that you had that you wanted more and you wanted to be happier and where do you think that comes from
0: from a lack of uh, satisfaction a lack of uh, strong ego and not a uh, you know uh um not ego is the word self esteem i think that would be the correct word let's just use that word lack lack of great self esteem right like of you know thinking you know because deep down rooted insecurity is what creates um, that, you know. So regardless of how secure you seem, some people really are insecure. It's not something people would say about me now (laughs) at all. Uh, But, yeah, feel good and you want to feel better. And you turn to drugs. And that's as simple as it gets, you know. And, And that's where that was going. And, you know, so far so good. It was recreational. I wasn't always there, you know. But then... I ran into this woman, and I hate to say it's a damn woman, you know, but it, I don't want to be sexist. I don't want to be anything. But I ran into a woman who said to me, listen, it's your birthday party. And I, we always had this huge, you could imagine, 100 people coming to a place. I lived in the mountains, and it was a great place. And I had all this land. We had a volleyball court. And they came out to my birthday party, which is, uh, you know, in May, late May. And school is over out there in May. And all these people come and you drink and you do drugs. And this is remember the years, you know. Now this is the eighties already, and they come out and there I was. You know, she says, "Would you like to try something?" It's my birthday. Why not? You know. So she takes out a needle and she takes out a tie and she takes, shakes it up. And it's this is called dilaudid. Now people don't know what dilaudid is. It's a synthetic heroin, and you shake and bake it. It's called. See, this is a drug, uh, the lesson in drugs here, you know, it's still around to ingest and shaking bacon is incredible. You know, it, it shakes down and you just shake it and shoot it and you shoot it up. and you don't, you mainstream it, uh, mainline it, excuse me. And, and I'm sitting there. It's my birthday party, hundreds of people. Up, she takes me to the bathroom. She shoots me up with this and go, whoa. And a rush comes over your body. It was a well-known drug before, uh, actually that's what they were doing with oxycontin so it's as strong as or was and they still actually use it um at times uh for pain but it obviously mine must have been emotional pain because that's all i used it for so i i took this that was it i think i was addicted in a day i just think i got addicted that minute you know and then she started coming around more and more All kinds of effects it was a, a euphoric effect that these people are feeling on this heroin these days this is why it's so unique you know and um then we started hanging out. It was the summer, so it was easy for me. I wasn't coaching. I was trying to play soccer a little bit, which I love. We were in the summer leagues, and uh, I was getting ready to coach again. Uh, things were good, you know. But uh, you know that was that right there was became my ecstasy of drugs. It was a downer. It wasn't the cocaine. It wasn't the LSD. It wasn't all the stuff that I had experimented with. But it was recreational. And from there, we continued on this, you know, very dysfunctional relationship you know but based around drug addiction and right there and then uh, the next thing within seven days you could feel the withdrawal you know if you didn't have your fix there was a doctor in uh, espanol in new mexico that was giving them out like candy and so we would drive up there tell the doctor my foot hurts each of us get 10 of those they'd last a while and then you're out the doctor ends up getting i mean i'm shortening the story the doctor ends up getting busted now I'm with this woman saying to you, what can you get from me? What can you get from me? That's when uh, Mexican tar heroin was around, okay? And I was in New Mexico, next to tar heroin come up, and um, this black heroin tar, is like more tar, I remember it. And that's when I started shooting up heroin, you know, because I needed something not to be sick. And that's when things started costing much more money, and that's when my whole life began to fall apart. Incredibly fast. Furious for the next two and a half, almost three years. I lost everything. How
1: were you financing it? Were you selling off your property? and?
0: Ironically, yes. You know, uh, whatever savings I had. My habit was between a hundred and sometimes when I uh, quit teaching. I mean, later, a thousand dollars a day. Yeah. Shocking, isn't it? Shocking. At, at that time. You. At that time. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty sad time in my life. Um, you know, it started out with the 2550 thing, then all of a sudden I'm selling a picture. I'm paying some guy, you know, I got, I got real close to this, uh, this Spanish uh, Indian named Haranimo. He was my drug buddy, you know. I'm still, remember, I'm running the first camp. The Sangre de Cristo soccer camp, no one ever ran it before. Probably the first camp in New Mexico for soccer in the summer, you know. And I'm starting to do all these things, you know, and all these things. And you get back to work and uh, you work to score and you score to work and, and, and you live to score. And, you, you know, that's all you do is you live to the next day. And, and it was a pattern that it started that day at my birthday. Uh, I would say it was my, about my 34th or 35th birthday. It's hard to say exactly. Um, my mid-30s. Here I am. Now I'm totally addicted, you know, to heroin. I try to go to work. I'm shooting up in the bathroom. I'm leaving school at noon. Now was a campus school that had a place. I'm running across. I'm taking my car, going to the middle of the Sangre de Cristo projects, okay? And in those projects is Viejo, Joe, and Margie, a couple, and I'm buying dope. I'm, I'm in that project. I got stabbed in those projects in my hand, right through my hand, you know, Um This started to evolve to like a real nightmarish life, you know, as I recollect it, you know, as I go back now, I can talk about it. Right. But when you're going through it, all you care about is where am I getting that fix? Because you really do withdraw. Uh, So here's a span of my life. I'm probably better off forgetting, but it might be good that I recall it for those who are listening or anyone that knows there's hope. There's um, um, redemption in life. There really is. There really is redemption. But there I was, uh, a hopeless drug addict, director of high school guidance, first high school soccer coach until I lost, you know, they eventually, they didn't fire me, but... uh,
1: Did they realize what was going on? Yes,
0: absolutely. You know, I got arrested for forgery and fraud while I'm a teacher.
1: What kind of fraud? Oh, I was
0: check kiting. I was sending, making checks. Back then there was not the the, the system they have now in computers, Uh, uh, forging prescriptions. You know, I was doing a lot of stuff. You know, that, um, because why? Because when you're in that situation, which this country's got to realize, uh, uh, through all these people that are having the same difficulties they're having now that I had, you only care about that because you're so helplessly addicted, so helplessly strung out. I always say I didn't have a monkey head of gorilla on my back. You know, that's what I was going through.
1: Did you get into trouble? Did you get arrested? Like-
0: I was uh, doing anything to score. So, so the, the way it worked was this. It was a three-year process, you know. But I was still at school, still working, going over there, scoring, going to the bathroom, scoring. A very functional drug addict. I loved it, you know. It was the ecstasy of drugs. It felt great. Um, go back, be a counselor, a very popular counselor, you know. Um, and then uh, living alone at that time with one of my children, uh, my other child left the ones I have now in a place in the, in the mountains where 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 that party was and uh uh try and take care of her, which wasn't very successful. All I cared about scoring uh would go at lunch uh, from playing racquetball with the governor of, of New Mexico to being a drug addict you know so instead of going to play racquetball at lunch, which I used to do, and I was good at it, I turned end up to an a player and this just remember this is my early thirties uh Then and now I'm running to score and go back to school and and do all that, you know, Um, like I say, from very high esteemed, very well liked, very well known to that. So, yes, what happened a few times was um, I would uh, maybe write a check, forge a check, steal money, do this stuff like that. Uh, Never got caught. The biggest one was a, uh, an interesting, horrible, horrendous story. Um, no one ever got hurt, so I can't say I harmed any human being. It, these are nonviolent crimes. This is what happened. At that time, I'm not working anymore. So I leave the school system voluntarily because they put me in... Couple treatment centers, they don't work. You relapse, you go back. You relapse, you go back. I've been in treatment centers. I've been there. They try to help you, you know, and it doesn't work. What do they do there? What what kinds well, of well, treatment are- centers are twelve step centers? You know, you 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 first of all, you have to detox. You know, and and that's hard. You know, and uh, one place was out in uh, a Valley, and uh, they put me for thirty days. You know, and the minute I got out, I relapsed. The minute I got out, the only thing you think about is how am I going to score again? These are the struggles that these uh, people. Uh, that are currently in this situation, which, which numbers million least in this country, are going to battle, you know, because it takes that extra something. I mean, I know I'm one in a thousand that's clean from what I've done. Um, so, you know, the treatment centers, different detox centers, different places, and I still go ahead and I forge it. I got caught forging a prescription. I steal a pad in the hospital and I forge it and I run out and go fill it out and run back to the hospital like I'm not there. I mean, I've done things that, unconscionable things and and the details are important as as much as the devastation that i caused on myself and those around me who loved me then this one story and this is one i did not get caught with and i thought i would and to this day you know statutes limitations are gone and the drugstore is gone so he says to me get in the car he goes into the drugstore
1: this is geronimo
0: yes sir and he robs the drugstore at gunpoint so that's now you got serious stuff here. You know, that's not an easy thing. I was not in the drugstore, I was in the car. He said, let's get out of here. I go back to my place. Now at this point in my life, I left teaching. When I said a thousand dollar a day habit it was because I got sixty grand out of my pension. I didn't keep it in my pension. I started spending it like it was water. Because what do you know? You're never gonna run out of sixty grand back in the nineteen mid eighties. That's a lot. And I, I I go and uh I drive the car, we we come out. He comes out with bundles of drugs. We go to my place and nobody's around. My daughter's not around there at that point. We put a mattress on the window. I own guns. You know, hard to believe this nice little coach owned guns, you know. <laughs> so, shotgun, guns, 45, you know. We blocked up the door, figured that was it. The police, state police are going to come. We're going to have a shootout and your life is over, but we don't care because we're shooting up all kinds of, uh, you know, chemical cocaine, diluted, you know, codeine, you know. All this stuff. We're just doing all these drugs, you know, for days on end, you know. And then he never got caught. He never got caught, you know. Um, one of the good horror stories of life. Or the bad ones, I would say. Rather than good ones, The ones I remember is not a good one. It's just one that I ended up. So I did get uh, a couple times arrested in a local jail for um, using, what was it, kiting, check kiting, and which means you're writing a check against another account that's not there. But, you know, nowadays that's hard to do. But back then you could. And then, uh, like I say, the charges were, you know, you know, not, not paying checks, bouncing checks all over the place, making up stuff back then. It was, you know, just to get that $50, $100, whatever it was. So eventually that was the time when I was unemployed. Now I already, you said you sold everything. I sold my kitchen sink. I literally tore apart the house. I had these custom made cabinets. I pulled them out and I sold it to somebody. Um, uh, I know that uh, these guys were breaking into houses, stealing stuff. And was I around for that? Yeah. You know, I mean, these are things that are horrendous. I hope the world does not think poorly of me. But these are the choices you make when you're a drug addict. And uh, that's who I was. That's not who I am.
1: Yeah. And there's so many more those types of stories. So many people who are sitting in prison for these types of things and not necessarily for violent crimes.
0: You know... I don't like to talk too much about the family because I have some dysfunction in my family, but I have a young daughter, my youngest, who's sitting in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility right now, who was a heroin addict, who, because of where she was, because of Ulster County, not New York City, got put away for a while. Because if you're in New York City, they'll give you probation. You're in Ulster County, New York. They put away, you know, for $280 worth of drugs. And it spent the last three years in and out of prison, you know, and it's due to get out soon. Now I try to help her a few times and she went right back. So there's a struggle in my own family. And, uh, so I recognize this. Now, if she could, she knows about me. If I can help her, it'd be great. If I can help anyone out there realize that a change is possible, then God, that's great. You know, um, if I could change one life, just one, uh, then this is all worth my story.
1: Clearly, the system doesn't work.
0: Punishment does not work. Correct. Punishment can't work. These how, prosecutors, how do we change that? these people, these, you know, think that's the answer. It's just not going to happen. But we keep
1: saying that. But to my knowledge, that's the way we can continue handling these these things and, and these people.
0: You know, I think it was a state from New Hampshire, I think, started a new program around uh, treatment versus prosecution versus uh, internment or call it what you wish jail so i don't think there's a simple solution but one thing is for sure filling the jails because it's an economic thing it's not filling jails is not just punishment it's to make money yeah. it's communities that make money it's, it's these for-profit jails that make money it's all about let's keep the jails full and it's part of a horribly non-functioning government uh state local and federal and treat the source, you know, make these kids more whole, you know, make, make the world more whole, make them appreciate life, uh, give them fulfilling lives, filling jobs, uh, get them at a young age, you know, uh, no simple solution. There's no doubt.
1: You're still in Santa Fe, you don't have a job, you've sold everything off. Yes, yes. Then what happened?
0: Well... I was still pretty strung out and, uh, failed to, uh, do that. And I had a bit of a spiritual awakening. I said, I can't do it. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, in the drug recovery program, they say you, 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 haven't bottomed out yet. That's a big term you hear. Well, guess what? I just bottomed out. Um, I have a 13 year old daughter and no place to live. Uh, well, I have a place to live. They foreclosed on the house, but wait until they kicked me out. Back then, so what I said is, you know, mom, I'm coming home, you know, uh, basically. But mom was married to someone else by now. And the stepfather didn't want to hear, I'm coming home. But she did take my daughter. And then I flew back from New Mexico on an airline only uh, non your non-generation would understand called People's Airline. <laughs> it was one of those discount airlines, okay? Back then, it's, you know, it's like, okay, for fifty nine ninety nine you can get to New York. And I had a dollar 23 in my pocket. That was it to my name and the clothes I had on my back. And I dropped, I, Mother picked me up, I dropped Laura. She said, Okay, you have to leave. I went, lived in the city a little bit, no place to live. And then I called my friend, uh, you know, pretty much homeless. So I'm homeless, penniless. That's me. But I couldn't score if I wanted to, I had no money. And I'm feeling like shit, you know, like really bad because I'm still withdrawing. The doctor before I left gave me uh, Clonidine. Back then, they discovered this thing that if you take a low low, blood pressure pill, it stops the withdrawal syndrome. So that's what I started hitting. And it's not addictive, but what it is is you feel no REMs, no rapid eye movement, no um, you know, your blood pressure drops down. So you can't take it. So it's because it lowers your blood pressure. And it, at least you're not vomiting or trying to vomit or throw up. And so I started taking those and just to get through it. Then I called a friend in Long Island and said, can I sleep on your couch? And he said, yeah, come. An old friend who passed away by now, um, himself had his own problems, but he was clean, and he let me sleep over there. And uh, from there was a long road to recovery, but homeless, penniless for a little under—not a long time—but enough. Then sleeping on someone's couch, and then uh, bringing my daughter back to me, and uh, driving a cab. You know, that's what happened. I—I I, I was able to keep taking the pills, going to meetings, and praying, praying that God please give me the strength not to use today. God, give me the strength. Please don't let me use today, please. And I would have dreams about drugs, and uh, it, was a, it was a it was a battle. It was a battle, but I didn't have a as much temptation. You know, that's where it all started to go. Now you go back in the other direction, but um, that period of my life, the three year period, or two and a half year period, the three years, it was tough. It's tough. It was tough to remember. It was tough to talk about and To believe it. I don't even believe it. That's where I began. That's where that's where the road to recovery began.
1: That really became the the turning point then.
0: Yeah. Big turning point. Um uh, you know, so I drove a cab and I saw the New York Times back then and there were all these kids in trouble. I think it was crack era. Um yeah, in the eighty six, eighty-five, you know, eighties. And I um saw an ad. Special ed teachers needed. Well, you know, I still had a degree. I have no felony convictions. I was driving a cab and making money. I mean, I was riding the midnight shift, six at night to six in the morning. In the city? No, or no a... it was Long Island at that time. But I I did someone, you know, I was going to go to the city. He's in Long Island because that's where the guy gave me a place to live. So I did that. And she got a daughter in schools. You know, she's 15 at the time, 14, 13 to 14. And uh, I lived, uh, you know, lived on this guy's couch. He let her stay there. And then someone let me live in an apartment for. $250 every two weeks, you know, like basement, no furniture, nothing. Just somebody gave me a mattress on the floor, uh, but grove. And so it's and I said, yeah, I'll apply that immediately. You know, you're kidding me. Certified, healthy male here. I'm going to put you in this room with these 13 year old, uh, special ed students. that are probably born from crack moms. I don't say they are. And it was tough. It was crazy. It was nuts, but I had an income.
1: Nuts in what way?
0: Well, remember now. This is emotionally disturbed young boys. It happened to be boys. I could have had girls, but it happened to be have about. It was a K to eight school in East Harlem, so I'd have to pass the drug dealers. They were selling heroin that I really wanted back in my life, but I stayed away from. Yeah, one hundred twentieth Street. Not not the greatest neighborhood in the world back in the eighties, you know. So they were um, throwing chairs through the room, crazy, you know, just out of control. And one thing was good: is I was straight. I was healthy and I was a male, you know, and it was, and I didn't know anything about teaching special ed. Remember, I had a guidance degree, I had a phys ed degree, and they kept me. Now, this is when it gets a little tricky. So here I am teaching. They love me. Everyone else quit. So no one's teaching this class. They all quit. And, uh, I just took it a day at a time with commute, long commute, and then continue to drive a cab uh, Saturdays and Sundays. I'd wake up at six, 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd finish my shift. i go home, change. i go to work the next day. Same day. Wow. Yeah, so it was a tough one. But again, I had penniless, you know. I had to make money, you know. And then the Department of Ed, of course, screws your check up for a month or two. So you don't have any pay. So I had to make money as a cab driver. It was a tough time. But I was straight. That was the secret. I was straight and starting to feel my spirit back. And the guy would pick me up, take me during the week to, a, uh, to an AA meeting. Yeah, so, so here I am, it's uh, May, hot May. Uh, I get called down to the principal's office, right? Two detectives are sitting there. They say, uh, you Martin Jacobson? And I says, yeah, yeah. He says, you have a warrant for your arrest in New Mexico. You're going to be extradited and taken back to New Mexico. And I go, I'm looking. I said, whoa. I'm, uh, I'm looking and saying, oh, my God. Um, you know, I, I'm flabbergasted. Now, this is around 1985, let's say, okay? I'm teaching. I'm clean. I'm healthy. I'm, you know, popular again, getting my spirit back. Remember, you're spiritually bankrupt when you're a drug addict. You forget the economic for sure, emotionally for sure, screwed up, but spiritually bankrupt, you know. And, um, but I had that still in my spirit. And I, 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 I never forget. They couldn't believe it was me. So they take me in, they take me out of school in handcuffs. And it's the hottest day of the year. I can never forget. It was June. It was a June. And they, um, stick me at, um, they take me to One Center Street. See, you'd have to be a New York person to understand this. So One Center Street is where they take you and they put you in lockup. And now and, you're in lockup. that's up. just
1: up the street here.
0: Yes, sir. And it's lock up with 20 other inmates. Everything you've seen on TV, how they lock your feet and hands together and they march you, you know. Similar to probably what Sheriff Joe does in Arizona, that asshole, (laughs) you know. But, you know, I was accused of forgery and fraud. And I was facing 20 years in jail. That's what they told me. And that I had to be extradited back to New Mexico because there's an outstanding warrant. You see, when you get your teaching license, you take fingerprints Well, the fingerprints take time to get back. So when the fingerprints came back, a red light or alert happened. The police get notified, I am now taken out of school into One Center Street and draws us there and then sent to the tombs. I wasn't sent to Rikers because Rikers would have been next. What's the tombs? The tombs is the famous lockup in that area in One Center Street. The famous, famous tombs. That's what they're called. I believe they're still there. So here I am. Ethnically different, but spiritually together. And, uh.
1: What's going through your head when all of this is going down?
0: Wh- uh, you know, pretty much blown away by, uh, this drama, you know, um, pretty much blown away by the drama and, uh, fear. I mean, I don't know what the hell's going on. I mean, they're, 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 um, they just took me out of school and put me into this horrendous setting waiting for me to go in front of a judge waiting to be extradited not knowing what's going on for how long were you there uh i spent three days i think on the fourth night i got out eventually um my mother god bless her soul found me found a guy in the hallway a lawyer says represent my son quick you know get him out and they made an agreement she gave him like how many thousands of dollars and made an agreement with new mexico that i can come back on my own so i wasn't extradited and uh uh the department of ed uh the school year was over i could never go back to teaching until i cleared this matter up and they wanted me back the school wanted me back uh, they were shocked you know and all this but um the charges were there they weren't for the drug store they weren't for the breaking and entering they weren't for any of that they were for, for some of the checks i wrote and they had the warrant the warrant was written you know remember i was quickly exited town you know there's a saying you have to make amends well guess what i did not make amends on that one and then and it caught up and uh you know being in that uh jail situation uh because what it was so hot you take of for sure i was getting strong again remember i was, I was young and my body was strong you know um and you take your shirt off and you sleep on your sneakers. You're laying on a floor with 20 other inmates until they sent you to the tombs uh, waiting to be processed to go back to the to to Rikers. And uh, it was just, you know, it's just kind of like a blurb now, you know, in my mind. Because it's 30 years ago or more. But that was, uh, you know, it's not so much what going on my mind at the time. Fear, probably, you know. Uh, anxiousness. But you know what kept me? What keeps you? You're clean. And you're sp- getting spiritual enlightened. One of the highest moments of my life was, one, I wasn't going to eat the bologna sandwich they fetch you. Two, the Kool-Aid was a sip. Three, fast and look for God. And that's what I did. I fasted and looked for God and asked for God's help. Because that's what saves you. And any time of crisis, who are you going to turn to? I'm a believer in God, you know? God, please help me out of this. Please, God, please, God, please, God. I kind of pray for championships that way, too. Believe it or not. <laughs> maybe God doesn't like soccer, maybe he does.
1: Where does that strong belief come from?
0: You know, remember I was a uh, I went on a path of, of spiritual enlightenment, uh, you know uh, through the seventies took something with to silver mind control i meditated i i believed in in higher power i developed this akin uh, through lsd and through not lsd through through the ability of where we get what we want we can we can create anything in our reality we manifest reality through our spirit i believe in all that stuff and to this day i still do the practicing it you know the the, the you know like like talking to god believing that god's talking to you i may be different i may not be but I think in times of crisis, we have to turn to some kind of spirit and some kind of higher energy level. And that's it, you know. And, uh, it's the same to me through it. I got through it. They made me go back. Uh, they let me go back and, uh, uh, to New Mexico on my own. I had to hire a lawyer. My mother helped me. You know, I had to fly back there. I have friends there, uh, except also people want to kill me there too. So that was, you know, cause you know, I owed money for drugs, you know. So the drug addicts want to kill me if they found me.
1: How did you get, get out of this one?
0: Well, when they came in, I had some real strong letters of recommendation back then, nice typewritten letters that you know, we didn't have computers back then, and uh, i use a wide race of computers. And what it is is uh, a, fel- a police officer that I knew from Long Beach, um, he wrote a beautiful letter. Uh, I had uh, the principal of the school wrote this incredible gleaming letter of what I was doing with kids, and they decided to give me a shot they just said you know what you piss in this bottle piss in this bottle you come out clean no problem now i didn't drink i didn't do drugs i was clean so i didn't worry about pissing in a bottle you know i was clean actually i had mouthwash that morning i got scared i thought maybe you know the mouthwash would go up bottom line they came up they offered me this uh, system called pre-prosecution you stay out of trouble uh you'll go and uh take some you know you'll go urinate in a bottle at times during the first year you're fine which they never even asked me to urinate of that they just left the state they dropped the cases they 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 gave me uh they they didn't know convictions no anything they gave me clearance i go back to the department of ed back then it was called the board of education i gave them all the documents they reinstated me into class and and then the journey begins once again you know into uh school in east harlem and then in 1994 king came open i said that's it i'm home you know like, what can i build build them they shall come and that's what happened since then now i hope that makes uh, chronological sense absolutely but you hit me on my uh, downside and my uh, coming up but uh, those are some of the stories uh, the horror stories i have uh, and if i think deep enough we can probably come up with a few more but i think that'll do for now
1: listening i hope you enjoyed it if you did please subscribe on itunes and write a review i would really appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time if you have any feedback or ideas feel free to send me an email at sebastian at coffee and dot com. you can also link up with me via twitter the handle is at coffees football stay tuned for next episode it will be another amazing one thanks again and have a great week